And we're right in the middle of a series called In Accord, where we're going through the book of 1 Timothy. So if you can, open up your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I'm going to be reading out of the ESV. And if you were at the business meeting on Monday night, you know that Larry took a couple jabs at me about using the ESV. And he uses the NIV. And really, it's just a bunch of uh, pastor jokes that are really lame. But... Nonetheless, you know, we're doing that. So I give him a hard time. He calls the NIV the naturally inspired version. And I say, I know. That's why I don't use it because I want a supernaturally inspired version. (laughs) And I tell him that uh, the ESV is the extra spiritual version. So that's how it works. Um, It's just banter going back and forth. But I am using the ESV. We have some text on the the screen. So let's do this. Let's go right into 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we'll pick it up where Paul is writing to Timothy. He writes, first of all. Then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given in the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Let's pray together. God, this is the text that you've given us as a church to spend some time thinking about and spend some time hearing. And so God, I pray that you would grant us the spirit to be able to think through and think properly about what this text says. And I pray also that the spirit would come in such a powerful way that it would touch our hearts to believe what we see here. God, we have gathered as your church. We want to hear from you. We want to meet with you. And so I pray, God, that you would see fit to do that exact thing. I thank you for your word, which is alive. It is active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Thank you for how it penetrates our hearts and lays it bare. And God, as you lay bare our hearts, I pray that you bring us to repentance and that you would encourage us in how we can continue to follow you, understanding the gospel and its implications for godliness. So teach us these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, my wife and I, we have this little kind of banter that we do back and forth. And uh, basically what it is, is uh, each of us are kind of predisposed. I don't know, predisposed to like and certain and dislike certain things. You guys know how that is uh, um, with colors and with foods and all that. But it was interesting in, in the relationship between my wife and I. We actually have been going back and forth for a long time that each of us at, at first, we don't really like certain things or we think that we may not like certain things. And then we make it our goal as the other person in the marriage to make the other person like it. And once that happens and we change the other person's mind, we claim victory. And so it's just one of those goofy things that we do. And it's not, you know, like hardcore type stuff. It's just like simple things. And I'll give you an example. When Heather and I met in college, uh, she wasn't really all that interested in baseball. She didn't find it very exciting. She didn't really know much about it. And that was a problem. And it was a problem because I was in college on a baseball scholarship. So when we met, it was kind of like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to try to come alongside of her and teach her about baseball and help her to love baseball. And uh, just this week, um, who do you think it was that took my daughter and my son to the batting cages? It wasn't me. It was her. Victory. And so there's my wife. 
And she goes from somebody who didn't even like baseball or didn't know much about baseball to now taking my daughter and my son to the batting cages and videotaping it and giving pointers and all this kind of stuff. And I look back and I go, ha ha, that's right. But if we're keeping score, the reality is this, is she has way more victories than I do. Uh, just to give you an example, um, my wife loves to eat healthy. And uh, that was, I only ate healthy because I was a collegiate athlete, so I had to. But, um, you know, I prefer cheeseburgers. And so she uh, encouraged me or recommended that I actually begin to drink this beverage called kombucha. And the reason why she wanted me to drink kombucha was because I had some digestion issues. I had headaches, frequent headaches. She was like, you know what, if you drank this, it'll improve your gut health. And I said, nope, because I have this little thing. Any kind of food that's like healthy food or like healthy drinks or something like that, I typically call that stuff uh, because it tastes earthy and it smells earthy. I call it just dirty. And so when I know my wife comes home from Trader Joe's and she plops that Trader Joe's bags or the Sprouts bag, I know, oh, man, we're about to eat something dirty tonight. (laughs) And that's, that's just the way it goes. But here's the thing is she said, you should drink this kombucha because it will help you. It's fermented tea. It'll help you with digestion and stuff. And I said, there's no way, absolutely no way, not only that I'm gonna drink this, but that I would even want to drink this. It's horrible, it smells wretched. If you ever pop one open and take a whiff of that thing, it might knock you out. It's bad news. So I told her, no way. And anyways, um, so I decided I'll try it. And so I started to drink kombucha about three times a week, four times a week. And lo and behold, a year and a half later, I have no more digestion issues and I don't have headaches anymore. So it's kind of funny because uh, as I, now I, you know, I get home and I'm like, oh, I need to drink my kombucha. And then she's like, oh, really? <laughs> Victory for her, you know. But what's really interesting is, is even in things like entertainment, uh, my wife just kind of, I don't know, helped me to change my mind. Uh, she used to watch Masterpiece Theater on PBS. And, you know, I was back when Downton Abbey was all the rage. And I remember thinking, there's no way any self-respecting man will ever like that show, you know. And I was like, no way. And so I saw a couple episodes. Next thing you know, I saw every season. And I'm just like, Ooh, you know. And again, she's on the couch, victory, you know. It's like, all right. But what's interesting is all of us have these kinds of things that we think in our minds that there's no possible way I could ever like that thing. And there's no way we predetermine in our minds, not only that I won't like it, but I can't like it. You know what I'm talking about? And it could be about entertainment. It could be about food. But the interesting thing is this, is I started to notice, even with my own self, that we kind of predetermine ahead of time whether or not we can or want to like other people. And I noticed that to be true, where, where sometimes we have uh, this pre, preconceived idea of what a person is like, and we have this predetermined kind of attitude towards that person, and we think to ourselves, I don't think, I can't like that person, I can't get along with that person, I don't really want to spend time with that person, or sometimes we deem another person unworthy of our time and attention. And that's true. And I know some people will deny that, and they'll say, no way, I love everyone. No, you don't. Let's just be honest real quick. Um, let's not fool ourselves or anyone else. There in, in every human heart runs this kind of th- thread where we just, we prejudge people. We predetermine a person's likability and value. We do that. We do it by the way other people dress, how they speak, what their education is, how much money they have, what job do they have. That's why when you introduce yourself to somebody, oh, hi, my name is so-and-so. What do you do? Where do you do it? And who do you do it with? Because we want to know what kind of person am I dealing with here? I need to know real quickly whether or not you're worth my time. And that's just the reality of it. That's how it is because human beings are sinful. 
And right from the beginning, from Genesis chapter 3 on, we actually see that there is interpersonal human conflict because of sin. That Adam and Eve, once they became aware of their sin, they looked at each other and didn't like each other anymore. And ever since then, it has been embedded in all of humanity that we prejudge, predetermine, we have biases, we are inclined towards some people and not others. And that's basically the root of a lot of conflict. And actually what we see in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is Paul understands that that's a prevalent issue within human culture and society. And so he wants to address it. And on top of that, he wants us to remember who Jesus is in light of that. And so we have to remember a little bit about who Paul is, if you remember. And I'll, and I'll show you why, uh, how we know or, or why we know this to be true. Remember who Paul was. He was, as he said, a chief of sinners. For Timothy chapter 1, he says, I'm the foremost sinner. I'm insolent. I was a blasphemer. And if you remember Paul's life, uh, when he became a Christian, he tried to uh, go into the Christian church. And what was really interesting is the people didn't accept him. They were predetermining and exercising their prejudgment that there's no way a person like Paul could ever be welcomed in their church because he was just, man, he was way out there. And it was hard for them to embrace him. And then Paul says in, in verse 18 of chapter 1, it's actually a command where he commands Timothy to wage the good warfare. So he tells Timothy, look, I'm the worst sinner in the world. Man, I was, I was horrible. These are all the things I did. It was hard for people to accept me because of who I was. Because naturally we prejudge and preevaluate and predetermine people. But I want to tell you, you need to wage the good warfare. And then we are encountering these words in verse 1. First of all then. Which tells us that the then there is, is a, a conclusion. And first of all means here's the first thing that I want to tell you about what I already just told you. And what the last command was in verse 18, I charge you to wage the good warfare. We ask the question, well, how do you engage in the good warfare? How do you wage war effectively? And this is what Paul says. Well, first of all, here's what you do. Here's how you engage in the good warfare, the spiritual warfare. He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So what Paul does is he says, look, if you're going to wage the good warfare, the fight of faith, as he says in uh, chapter 6 in 1 Timothy, it begins with this. It begins with prayer. And he mentions four different kinds of prayer here. And, and there's a lot of pastors and there's a lot of writers who, who write books on the four different kinds of prayer here. But I don't know that that's what Paul's necessarily uh, really trying to drive home. I think what he's saying is, look, I don't care what kind of prayers you pray. You just need to start praying. And I think that's one of the issues with us, why we don't pray. It's not because we don't know how. It's just because we don't. It's kind of like healthy eating. It's not like we don't know how to eat healthy. We do. We just don't. There's vegetables. Put it in your mouth. Eat it. You see how that works. And so when we wage the good warfare, Paul's saying, look, it has to begin with prayer. And in fact, in Ephesians chapter 6, when he is encouraging the people to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, then he goes through all the armor of God. And he says, if you put these things on, you will be able to stand up against the schemes of the devil. And then in verse 18, he says, you praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and all supplication. What Paul's saying is, look, the icing on the cake and the thing that makes the armor of God effective is prayer. And the whole reason why you equip yourself with the armor of God is to wage the good warfare and to stand up against the schemes of the devil. And how you do that best is through prayer. Prayer. 
And yet, if you look at what Paul says, he says we need to pray for all people. We need to have all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. Now, who are the people that Paul is referencing? If you take it as uh, for all people, meaning every single human being without exception, that's, that's going to be tough. Hey, there's about six billion people on earth, Paul. What I want you to do is I want you to pray for each of them. Good luck. You think about that. That would be incredibly difficult for us to pray individually one by one for over six billion people. Instead, what we uh, kind of see here is that Paul actually in verse 2 gives us an indication of what he means by all people. And he says, I want you to pray for all people, verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions. In other words, what Paul says is, look, I want all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. And just to give you an example, what I mean by all kinds of people is for kings and who are in high positions. Now, that's significant why Paul does that. And the reason is this. In synagogal worship, which means New Testament era worship for the Jewish people, they had prescribed prayers. And in these prescribed prayers, you would pray them. Interestingly enough, there's not a single prescribed prayer that is ever used in the synagogue for kings and those who are in high authority. Why? Because the Romans are occupying their country, they're suppressing them and oppressing them, and so the Jewish people decide, you know what, we're not going to pray for these people. No way. They're horrible. And so perhaps the only prayers they prayed was for the Roman demise. And so what Paul does is he flips it on its head and says, no, 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 where previously you had got used to not praying for kings and people in high position, no, no, no. Now that you're a Christian and now that you're in the church, you need to teach the people that they need to start praying for kings and those who are in high positions. You need to be praying for them. And so what Paul does is he helps us understand it's not about praying for every single human being who has ever lived or is living. It's that you need to pray for every kind of human being without exception to their position in life. So you're not allowed to make a distinction like, oh, I will pray for this person, but these people I hate, so I won't pray for them. Or I like these people, so I'll pray for them, but these people, oh, man, they irritate me. There's no way I'm going to pray for them. And Paul said, no, 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 this is not what we want. No, you need to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. You see, running all throughout human history is this idea of just human interpersonal conflict where we naturally dislike people. We preferentially treat people better, some people better than we do others. And there are some people based on how they dress or how they smell or how they speak or whatever that we have predetermined, I can't like them. I will not like them. There's no way. And what Paul's saying, no, 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 all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. And in fact, this kind of behavior is not immune in the church. People in the church, including in this church, we do, in fact, treat people with prejudgment, prejudice, with preference, with predetermined, I don't know, value. We, we are biased because we are sinful. And, in fact, we see this in the New Testament recorded a, a number of times. But I'm going to highlight a couple of them. James chapter 2, verse 1. James writes, my brothers, show no partiality. That's another way to say bias or preference or prejudice. Don't don't show partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in 
And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. You see what's happening. James is directly uh, uh, coming against the church because they are showing partiality. They are predetermining and prejudging who is worthy of their attention and who is not. And what James says is that is sin. You cannot do that and claim to love God. You cannot do that and claim to love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, in our culture and in like human society as a whole, we typically try to separate and categorize people. That's how we differentiate between one another is we separate. We try to get people away. And in fact, Paul talks about that in Galatians chapter 3 where he writes that this, this shouldn't be like that in the church. We shouldn't treat people in a preferential, in a partiality, in a biased kind of way. He says this in Galatians 3. And everything is hinging on what he says last, which is you are all in Christ. So your position in Christ means, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. And so what Paul is saying is, look. Because you are in Christ, we do not separate ourselves based on our race, whether you are Jewish or not. You do not separate based on that because you're in Christ. Second one is there is neither slave nor free, which means because you are in Christ, we do not separate and differentiate ourselves based on our class, socioeconomically speaking, wealthy and poor. We don't do that because we're one in Christ. Last one, he says, and there is no male and female. We don't prefer one gender over another. We don't prefer one like malehood over femalehood. We're just saying this is better than that. We don't do that because we're all one in Christ. And so what's really interesting, what Paul is trying to get in our minds is we need to be praying all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people without showing partiality, prejudice, or bias for one group of people over another specifically when it comes to race, when it comes to class, and when it comes to our gender. We do not treat some people better than other people because that is out of step with the gospel and it shows that you are sinful and you do not love God and you do not love your neighbor. Do you see how that works? Now this is incredible because the world out there understands that there is interpersonal conflict and yet the world is prescribing all kinds of ineffective solutions. When in reality, the solution has been given to us by God, who is our creator, who is the very one who embedded creation with the diversity we see. So if he's the one who thought it all, let's go to him for the answer. Does that make sense? And what do we see there? We see that God has provided us with the peace that we need to be reconciled to one another. And we see that most clearly in how Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 2. He says, but now in Christ, notice the position in Christ. If you're a Christian, you're in Christ. You Gentiles, non-Jews, you once were far off and you have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. 
So when we come together for communion and we take the cup in our hand and, and we know that this cup with the juice in it is a symbol of the blood of Jesus, we're not just drinking grape juice, we're partaking of the symbol which represents how God is pleading by the blood of Jesus for all people, no matter where you come from or who you come from, to come to Jesus. This is a gospel for all people. And then what he goes on and says, for he himself, Jesus himself, is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So when we take the cracker in our hand and we're thinking, man, what is this? And what we have to understand is we're taking this bread in our hand and it is a symbol of Jesus' flesh, the means by which God has broken down the hostility. You hold in your hand a symbol of peace. And it's for all people, regardless of your class, your race, or what sex you are. You are invited. Come. And Paul goes on to say that God has done this so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. There's unity there. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So the sin of partiality, the sin of prejudice, the sin of racism, the sin of sexism, the sin of ageism, all of that has been slain because Jesus himself has been slain. And therefore, when we ask the question, what is the good warfare that we ought to wage? One of it is this, we ought to prayerfully put to death what is in our hearts in terms of our partiality, prejudice, and predetermination of who is more valuable than whom. We got to end that because it has no place in the church, no place in the gospel. And in fact, Jesus Christ died specifically and explicitly to make sure that the diversity is now a unity. That is beautiful. I don't know about you, but I think about it. I go, wow. So what that means is the more diverse our church is, the more our church reflects the, the effective work of Jesus. So we ought to celebrate how weird we are. And then Paul goes on and says, look, there's a good reason to do this. He says, we do this so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. It is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Brothers and sisters, if we will commit to prayerfully praying all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people without regard to how the world classifies people and deems their worth, if we will pray for people like that, God is pleased. That is a form of godliness. And that's why our church has for years now done this thing called the 30 days of prayer for the Muslim world. This, this isn't a joke to us. God said pray for these people. We're going to pray for them. So I encourage you to pick one of these up and begin with us an opportunity to pray for the Muslim world that they come to know Jesus, which leads us to verse 4. God is our Savior, and he desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, this verse has typically given people heartburn because it seemingly teaches that God desires every person without exception to be saved. Now, obviously, in 2 Peter, we're told that God wishes no one to perish. That's not God's desire. But at the same time, what this text is saying is not that God desires every person to be saved 
without exception. What this text is saying is God wants all people without distinction to come to a saving knowledge of the truth. Why it matters is this. If the text says that God desires all people to be saved, and what he means is all people without exception, then God has a desire that he can't fulfill. God wants something he can't have. And if God wants something he can't have, then what that means is whatever he, the reason why he can't have it, that that authority or that power is more authoritative or more powerful than God. And what do we do with this thing that Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So either God has all authority or he doesn't. It's not partial. And so a better way to read this is that, yes, we need to pray for all people without distinction. God is the Savior and desires all people without distinction to be saved, which tells us you don't have to become a certain kind of person to be eligible for, the, for salvation. You don't, if you're a woman, that's the Gospel of Thomas, which is so stupid. It's the whole Dan Brown thing. Remember the Da Vinci Code nonsense? It's unhistorical. All that. They, they said in order to be saved, you have to quit being a female and be a male. What? What are you talking about? Or, or you don't have to go from poor to rich in order to be saved, which is the prosperity gospel. You don't need that. You don't need to go from one kind of person to another person to make yourself eligible to be saved. Instead, what God is saying is, I want all kinds of people to be saved. And, and it's regardless of their distinction, whether they're male or female, whether they're slave or free, or whether they're Jew or Gentile, I want all kinds of people to be saved. Now, this is important. Because then in verse 5, Paul says, for or because, the reason why this is true is because there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The whole reason why it's important to emphasize how there's one God and there's one mediator and that mediator is Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ is the one uh, person who gave himself as a ransom for all the reason why that's so significant is because it tells us a little, bit, a little bit about who the person of Jesus is. If you have sinful man who has been totally removed from being eligible to come into the presence of God due to their sin, then the question is how does sinful man ever have opportunity and credentials to get into the presence of God? If God explicitly says, you cannot with sin be in my presence. How does that happen? So how does a sinful man get into the presence of an infinitely holy God? That's the obstacle that all of us face. How does that happen? And what's amazing is when it says there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. It tells us a little bit about who Jesus is. That Jesus is the mediator, the perfect person, the perfect mediator between sinful man and an infinitely holy God. Why? Here's the reality. The only way to bridge the gap between sinful man and an infinitely holy God is if you have someone who has the credentials to be in the presence of God, namely infinite holiness and righteousness. But at the same time, they understood the plights and the, and the, and the difficulties of what it means to be human. 
So what we need most as sinful human beings to ever have the credentials to get into the presence of God is somebody who will stand in the gap between us and God who is fully and truly human and yet at the same time fully and truly perfect and holy, infinitely so. And that's why Paul says Jesus is that mediator. Because he is God in the flesh. He is God who is perfect and sinless and holy, infinitely so. And yet at the same time, we read in Hebrews chapter 2. Somewhere in my notes. Here it is. We read this in Hebrews chapter 2. How Jesus is the perfect mediator because he's also a human being. Where the author writes, since therefore the children share in his flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, so that we might receive mercy and find grace and help to help in time of need. You see what the author of Hebrews is doing? He wants us to understand that God has become a human being. And the reason why God became a human being was he wanted to identify with us in every way imaginable. So he took on the flesh and blood just like we have flesh and blood. Not only that, but he was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted. And yet he resisted temptation, the very thing that you and I are unable to do. He did for us. So that he is without sin, which means that he has accrued or actually earned the credentials to go into the presence of the Father on our behalf. And so now we have a mediator, now we have an arbiter, now we have an intercessor who is truly man and who is truly God. And so we can plead to the Father to to save us and rescue us and we can do so because we have an advocate in Jesus who is able to bridge the gap between sinful man and an infinitely holy God. You guys see how that works? And so there is one mediator, there is one God and that mediator is Jesus who desires all people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group to come to him that they may be saved, that he can be their mediator and their arbiter and their intercessor because he alone is how we are saved because he is the only one with the credentials. That's why every other religion and every other philosophy is a failure to, re- to reconcile us to God because who else is truly a human being, and who else is truly God? No one else but Jesus. And that's why he is efficient and sufficient. And then we see that Jesus is a ransom. Verse 6, he gave himself freely. Notice Jesus' life wasn't taken from him. It says that Jesus gave himself. He voluntarily sacrificed himself for you and I. Not reluctantly, but joyfully. As a ransom for all. Again, to the all that is here, does that mean all people without exception? No. It means all people without distinction. 
Because if Jesus is a ransom, the word ransom means purchase. If Jesus actually purchased everyone, then everyone is saved. He purchased them. But that's not true. The Bible clearly says not, not everyone is saved. So who is it that he ransomed? Who is it that he purchased? We pick up on this in Matthew chapter, or Mark chapter 10, where Jesus understands why he came and what he came for. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Many. When he instituted communion in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks to it, he said to them, his disciples, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. And we read where Paul's talking to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He gives them the last kind of charge, the last kind of command, and he says to these elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which Jesus obtained with his blood. Do you notice that the text says that Jesus obtained, and the word is purchased. Jesus has purchased his church. Jesus didn't purchase the potential of saving people. Jesus actually and effectively purchased people. And that is a beautiful truth. He ransomed people for himself, as we'll see in a couple months through the book of Titus. He ransomed people for himself. He purchased them for himself. And it comes together in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song in heaven, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, speaking of Jesus, and to open its seals. Do you see the credentials? Worthy are you. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals because you are truly human and truly God. You are perfect. You are truly worthy of this. Why? Because you were slain, it says. And by your blood you ransomed, you purchased people for God. And look at these words, from. You purchased people for God from Every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Do you notice what it doesn't say is, and you have ransomed every tribe and language and people and nation. It doesn't say that. It says you have purchased, you have, you have ransomed people from. Now at this point, the natural question is this. Well, who is it exactly who Jesus purchased? Who is it exactly that Jesus has ransomed? How do we know who he bought and who he didn't? And I simply say, don't ask that question. That's not for you to know. Your job is to make sure that you share the gospel with everyone. You do, because here's the thing, by asking the question, well, how do I know ahead of time who is, you know, purchased and who isn't? What you're saying is, how can I predetermine the eligibility of some and not others? We do not show partiality. That is not our role. Instead, our role is to proclaim a gospel, the good news that whosoever, whoever is out there, regardless of, of where you come from or who you come from, whatever class you are, whatever race you are, whatever your, your economic background or your education, you are welcome. Come. And Jesus is sufficient. His blood has done it. it is, he has purchased 
All the requirements that God requires have been satisfied in Jesus. He is a faithful, sufficient Savior. Take hold of him. He's yours. So I would say the only way you know whether or not a person has been purchased by Jesus is by the fruit they bear. This doesn't mean you go around being a fruit inspector. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Here's the thing. The, remember the John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul, they both said this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, the indication that you know that somebody has been purchased by Jesus is that they have repented of their sins, that they are now supremely pursuing God as their uh, supreme treasure in life. They're loving their neighbor as themselves. And when they fail at those two things, they continually repent. As Martin Luther said, all of life is a life of repentance. So repent and believe the gospel. And so if you're not a Christian, the, the simple command is this, is, is you don't have to work your way to God. Jesus has done all the work for you. Take hold of him. Trust him. He has what it takes. He's done enough. Relinquish control and let Jesus be Lord. And it does not matter where you come from or who you come from. Jesus' blood is enough. His life is sufficient. His sacrifice is full. He's paid it all. Now, the gospel is one message for all people without distinction. I want us to see this before we close in, in just these two verses in Romans. Romans chapter 10, we all know this verse. Many of us who are Christians, we know this verse. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's why I encourage people who do not yet know the Lord, who have not yet surrendered to Jesus, confess with your mouth. I don't have what it takes, but he's enough. Believe in your heart that Jesus was risen from the dead. He's crucified for sins and risen to glory. He's bringing new life. If you believe that and you confess that, you will be saved. Verse 11. And many people just stop there and they go, I love that verse. There's more. There's more verses. Verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. If you come to Jesus, you will not be dissatisfied. You may be dissatisfied with your own morality, but you won't be dissatisfied with his. You will be satisfied. You will not be put to shame. God welcomes you. And when he adopts you, he makes you his own, and he's not kicking you out of the house. Verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 12, for there is no distinction. There's no distinction. God doesn't make distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Trust him. Believe in him. Take hold of him. He will save you. He's able and willing and then we see in Romans chapter 3, verse 22 to 24, and note this in the NIV. It's an olive branch. Listen to how Paul communicates this distinction concept of the gospel. This righteousness, remember the credentials you need to get into the presence of God, this righteousness is given through faith. In Christ Jesus. You can get into God's presence by having righteousness, which is given to you by exercising faith, and then you get in, your faith in Jesus, you get in. 
And it's to all who believe. And look at what Paul says here. There is no difference, no distinction between Jew and Gentile because all, both Jew and Gentile, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone, I don't give a rip if you're rich or not, you are sinful. And some people hide behind their wealth. I'm not that bad. Baloney. Says everyone. Well, well, I'm not that sinful. I'm well educated. What's that got to do with anything? No matter where you come from or who you come from, without distinction, you are sinful. God makes no distinction. That's bad news, right? No one's clapping for that. <laughs> and the beauty of it is because there's verse 24. And, or we could even say, but all without distinction, regardless of your prosperity, regardless of your sex, whether you're male or female, regardless of your education, regardless of your race, all are justified freely by grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Everyone without distinction, you've fallen short. And yet everyone without distinction, you are offered by God's grace to be justified, to be set free, to be forgiven. And that's why, brothers and sisters, we, you and I, can never, ever, ever participate in partiality, predetermining who is worthy of the gospel and who is not, deciding ahead of time by bias and decision-making of various kinds who we will pray for and who we won't. Because the gospel is for everyone. And Jesus beckons everyone. I don't care who you are or where you've come from. He says, come, all who are tired, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, and you will find rest. Come to me. Take hold of Jesus. You know, as we celebrate the gospel in tangible form through communion, what we're doing is we are celebrating that in the death of Jesus, the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. And that Jesus, in place of two hostile people, God is making one. And in the blood of Jesus, beckoning all who, who are out there, come. Come to Jesus. Be saved. And what I love about this is this meal foreshadows a greater meal. You know, in Revelation 19 through the end of the book, we're introduced to this thing called the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a time in which all the nations will come into the new creation and we will feast with Jesus who is the lamb at this marriage between he and his church. There will be great feasting because we know that it has been accomplished by Jesus. And this meal that we're going to share today is a foreshadowing of that meal. Because in the new creation we see people from every tongue, tribe, nation and people group standing around the lamb worshiping him for what he's done. And likewise we are gathering around this table today as a church with various backgrounds and we're saying together we are a foretaste of the new creation and that's why the world stands and looks at us and go how is this possible it's possible because of Jesus so we celebrate our differences we celebrate our our uniqueness and diversity because the more unique and diverse we are the more glory God gets because he's the one who invented this and he's the one ransoming people and to make it a diverse people of God. And so God, help us, I pray, as we come to the communion table to partake.
that you would remind us through the elements of this cup and this bread of what you have done in the gospel, that you have drawn all kinds of people to yourself, that you do not make a distinction between Jew and Gentile. We all have fallen short of your glory, and yet at the same time, you do not make a distinction. You call all people to yourself through Jesus. God, thank you for supplying our greatest need, for putting an end to human interpersonal conflict. And God, thank you so much that we get to share as a church in this communion table, this great, significant moment reminding ourselves of what you've accomplished on our behalf. Meet with us, I pray, in this time for for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.